It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Tortoise. It's the week ending Friday the 15th of September. I'm James Harding from Tortoise. Welcome to the news meeting. Turner's human loss, over 5,000 dead, 10,000 still missing, at least 20,000 displaced. Google is in court as the U.S. takes on the company's search dominance in the biggest antitrust trial in two decades. The government says it's committed to introducing what's been called Martha's Rule in England's hospitals. It would ensure patients' rights to a second opinion are properly observed. Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un. Is this now a fine romance? Prison, schools, China... Yet again, inaction man fails to heed the warning and then blames everyone else for the consequences. I'm joined by Tortoise editors Kat Nealon and Jeevan Vassagar. Kat, very good to see you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Jeevan, very good to have you here. Hi, James. Um, and most importantly, Andy Haldane, who was the chief economist of the Bank of England and now is the chief executive of the RSA and also on the Prime Minister's Economic Council. Are you still doing that? I am. I am, James. Hello. Um, nice to be here. I am on, on that, among very other side, various other side hustles. Do, do, does it, what does it do, the council? Huh. Good question. Uh, well, uh, it's there in principle to provide a degree of expert independent advice to the Chancellor on this, that and the other, you know, growth and what have you. There's been various incarnations of it in the past, and this is the current incarnation of it. It's off the back of the last year's mini-budget, right? Uh, <laughs> we remember it. We remember that one. <laughs> We're still living uh, through it. <laughs> uh, and the thought was, let's maybe stress test our ideas before we launch them on the world. <laughs> How novel. I know. That idea's never going to take off concept. in politics. Yeah. So, Andy, just to give you a sense of it, one of the reasons we want to bring people in from outside of the world of journalism is that part of the tortoise's idea was that there's a problem in the news. We're all chasing after the same story. Mm. Can we think about things differently? Then, of course, you get a separate problem, which is we then think about things all the same. So we hope you'll be here and weigh in and tell us actually, you know, what we're, you know, too fixed in the way we think about the news or the way we see the world. Feel free to uh, tell us we're wrong about, well, pretty much anything. <laughs> um, <laughs> I expect you might. Um, but let's start with long story short. In a sentence, what's the story you're here to talk about? It's a question, James, actually, which is, are we in recession yet? Are we the UK? Yeah. Are we in the UK in recession yet? Are we? I've got no idea. Um, <laughs> that's the benefit of experts, right? Um, it's okay, not just well, me that doesn't know. <laughs> uh, I guess you wouldn't be asking if you didn't think there was a real possibility we are. We'll come back in a moment. Kat? Mine is, Labour's finally working. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Jeevan? 
Uh, my headline is Mixing Business with Pleasure. Well, I have a guess of what that is. All right. Kat, why didn't you go first on, uh, on Labour? Okay. So my pitch is um, for a long time now, the kind of uh, sort of narrative around Labour is that it's doing well in the polls by default. They're kind of standing back and letting the Tories kind of rip themselves up. Um, but since the summer break, Labour has kicked things up a gear. So there's been the reshuffle, um, which we assume is now the shape of the shadow uh, cabinet going into the next election. Uh, people are very much in pre-conference mode. Um, apparently, people are sort of saying they're struggling to get any kind of meaningful time with people, but they are able to get a lot of time with lobbyists and corporate uh, interests, which gives you a sense of the type of people that are going to be at Labour Party conference. And the spectator this week or last said that they were going to be hosting their first ever party at Labour conference, which again gives you a sense of how things are shifting. Um, and they sort of defeated a, 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 the government on a bill, which I'm not going to go into huge detail this week, but was kind of again a bit of an indication of the kinds of ways that they're approaching things. So, um, what are you saying that this is the go home and prepare for government moment? Labour's changed gear. Yes. So, but the actual hook for this is uh, Keir Starmer's offensive, which launched with a big interview with The Times and Times Radio and an op-ed in The Sun. He's clearly kind of shifting his gaze from Westminster to the voters, specifically uh, in in the sort of the Times readership, the sort of blue wall and the red readership in the red wall and coming out with some long-awaited policy ideas, specifically around smashing the gangs, stopping the boats, going to, to Europol on Thursday uh, to discuss the kind of practicalities of it. Just, just hold on a second, what's the actual idea? So his plan is to treat uh, people smuggling gangs in the same way as you would treat terrorists. So that means you have international agreements set, in, set up to try and track them. You have uh, a sort of uh, idea about how you deal with the um, business model, stopping the boats before they even get to France so that you, you can't actually have the physical means by which to transport people. Um, and Kat, what's the story here? Is the story Keir Starmer gets serious about policy on small boats and asylum seekers or is the story News Corp begins to treat Keir Starmer as a prospective PM? Well, it's a bit of both. And I think I think it is interesting that both of the publications that he's gone to are part of the News UK family. I mean, that doesn't happen by accident, does it? No. The Sun, The Times, Times Radio, yeah. we're all giving you a platform to yeah. deliver a policy that we know speaks to wavering Tory Labour yeah, voters. and I think the jury is out as to whether legacy media can still claim to win an election. But clearly it is influential and has, has a lot of sway amongst its readership. It's very Blairite, isn't it? It's very much Blair goes to the Murdoch press. Yeah, yeah. It, it's an echo. Andy, what do you think of it as a story? Well, I think the, the media context to it is really interesting. Uh, I mean, the policy itself, let's see. Um, I start sceptical. This mm. by itself will move the dial. Nothing else has moved the dial. Maybe this will, will, will in the fullness of time, but, I, you know, I... I I need some convincing on that. I think that the positioning probably 
is the interesting aspect. Uh, For me, I think probably it's less about the effectiveness of the policy, because obviously that will take a lot of time to actually kind of get to see. But it's actually yeah. it's just quite reassuring to see there is a policy. There are ideas coming out, you know, firm sort of clear line between Labour and the Conservatives. No more Rwanda, you know, uh, talking about uh, speeding up the processing, which is obviously something that they've talked about before, but kind of more meat on the bones. Negotiating with the EU to agree that the UK would accept a certain number of EU migrants on the basis of help with um, dealing with the asylum seeker issue. Stephen, does any of this depress you, the idea that actually after 13 years, must be now 13 years, 130 odd days of the Conservatives running the country, that the Labour leader essentially puts on a light blue cloak in terms of going after asylum seekers. Is there any bit of you that thinks, okay, well, this may may be good political positioning, but it's depressing? Um, Yeah, it's a bit Tweedledum and Tweedledee, isn't it? I mean, the one sort of really heartening bit of the Times interview um, was that he said very clearly that he opposes the Rwanda policy. Mm -hmm. Um, But the rest of it, I mean, my main problem wasn't so much... um, that he emphasised migration as much as he did, because I understand there's a there's a preference on the part of the British electorate to reduce migration. Like, that goes across all, all classes and races, really. I think the bit of it that struck me was that it was just a bit boring. Um, <laughs> and I, I couldn't, the policy so, is boring. I, I couldn't latch onto it. Yeah, and the one, But that's probably because for you it's not a big issue, whereas for the people that he's trying to win over, it is. And just before we get into the sort of Tory light thing, I think the other interesting thing that came out of the reshuffle is, obviously he can't get rid of Angela Rayner because she's elected to be a deputy deputy leader by the party. Um, so she's always going to be there. He's given her the levelling up job. And uh, she, she gave a conference, uh, a speech to the um, uh, trade union conference this week in which she, she said that a Labour government would row back on the um, laws on strikes. Yes, but only can't. Come on. Only when you looked at the numbers that we crunched this week at Tortoise on donations, the thing that was most striking, I don't know whether you saw it, Andy, the thing that was most striking was that actually union donations to the Labour Party have pretty mm-hmm. much held up as was. Mm-hmm. It's just they've been completely overtaken. Mm-hmm. The private donations are now outranking the union donations. What was it? Six to one in the last period. So of course you want to say we still care about the unions, but the reality is you're much well, less reliant if you're Labour. They haven't been. They have been very, very careful not to say anything, you know, that this whole thing about, you know, no front bencher goes on on the picket and, you know, kind oh, of... Oh, I see. They, yeah, they, have been, they have been really, up till now, trying to give the Tories as little as possible to uh, attack and and sort of mapping them as closely as possible on a lot of different policies. Now, up until last week, um, they were going to... The reason why I brought this government bill that they defeated up, they were going to back it, and they didn't. And the way that they, they um, positioned it was because of this slightly boring term, nutrient neutrality. But basically, what, what it means... No, no, to what's it called? Nutrient neutrality. But what the positioning for people back home is if this bill had gone ahead it would have been meant more poo in your rivers and that's the way that's the way that you know if you kind of think about it from this kind of narrative of the Tories are so bad that we have actual SHIT in your rivers 
then this would have been more of the same. So I just think they are looking at things a bit more strategically and thinking where it is right for us to oppose, we will oppose. Right. Well, there's no bigger issue for the politics of the next year than what's happening in the economy. So, Andy, we're lucky to have you. Before you get into whether or not the UK is in recession, what is a recession? Well, technically, we have a nerdy, uh, as economists, nerdy way of defining it, which is basically two successive quarters where output GDP is going down rather than up. So and that's it. it. That's a recession. That, on the technical definition, yes. And do you have a human definition, i.e. what people experience as a recession? Well, I would say, you know, um, for, for the ordinary, per, uh, ordinary punter, yeah. it's about your job and your pay. If you ain't got a job, that's going to feel like a recession to you. If your payback is going down rather than up, that's going to feel like a, a, a recession to you. So can you have economic growth, i.e. GDP increasing quarter by quarter, but if you've got real, decline in real wages, yeah. i.e. your pay is either going down or it's buying less? Hmm. Do economists have a phrase for that? What's that? Well, feels we've, we've bad. seen that. Yes. Yeah, I mean, let's take the period uh, in the UK since the global financial crisis of 2008. Over that period... GDP, whole economy output, has edged up a bit. Hasn't been going gangbusters, but it's edged up year by year on average. But the the real pay, the inflation-adjusted pay of the average worker is pretty much where it was back then. That's flatlined over the same... 15 uh, years. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it hasn't not straight line, not, not pancake-like, but um, it's scarcely budged over that period. And if you got the US, they're the median workers' real pay hasn't budged in 50 years, despite the eco economy uh, heading up ever so slightly. So the prompt for my question really was, we had some hard numbers, hard, hardish numbers, and it showed output falling half percent. Yeah. You know, Q, um, panic. Uh, because it was 0.5% fall and people have been predicting 0.2% or the city had been predicting. That's right. right. Okay. That's right. So, you know, uh, you know, the narcissism of small differences, basically, on on this. Um, but that matters a lot, does it? Where, to sentiment, it does. To sentiment, it does. And it prompts the question, uh, you know, are we set fair for an economy that having, you know, it's been treading water for 18 months, basically, bouncing around zero, are we now entering a period where it's disappearing below the waterline? And just so if I get it right, if it's 0.5% decline in July... What you're saying is most likely in the third quarter, i.e. July, August, September, you probably get negative growth for that quarter. Could be. Could be. I mean, June was punchy. Uh, July was weak. Uh, June was punchy, it is said, because the weather was good. July was weak, it is said, because the weather was wet. Mm. But, but is that right, Andy? What's actually restraining growth in the UK? What, what's the problem? Yeah. Well, I mean, for much of the past, that, that flattening period, last 18 months, I'd say, the, the key driver has basically been that prices in the shops have been rising more quickly than people's pay packets. In mm. other words, their inflation pay has been falling over that period. We've now entered the crossover period where now people's pay is picking up faster than prices in the shops. Their take-home pay in real terms is now picking up. Uh, entering the second half of the year. That ought to be good news. That would be thumbs up for people spending and thumbs up for the economy. Mm -hmm. Alas, alas, just as that is happening, my old friends at the Bank of England 
have been jamming on the brakes for the last year and a bit. And as the cost of living is coming down, the cost of borrowing mm -hmm. is going up. Mm -hmm. And that is squeezing an already really very squeezed James consumer, a consumer who... Who's got a mortgage or a debt on Who's a got a mortgage, whose savings, you know, a bit of a windfall on savings during COVID. Yeah. Uh, but that windfall looks to have been spent now. And we now know that, you know, a great swathe, maybe a quarter, maybe as many as a third of households now, haven't got that rainy day reserve anymore. So when that mortgage bill pops on your doorstep, second half of the year... And the increment is a thousand pounds, or two thousand pounds, or three thousand pounds. That's going to be a massive psychological shock to the system. What actually stepping back do we think is going on? I think what I read is of an economy, as I say, that's that's been stalled for eighteen months. One which, at the start of the year, I'd said there's a decent chance that second half of the year would be begin to nudge north, but. Uh, such has been the tightening of the screws in terms of the cost of borrowing. I'm fearful now uh, we may see ourselves drifting south rather than drifting north into the second half of the year. The issue, though, then surely, Andy, is the bank got to inflation too late. Hmm. It persuaded itself it was, I think the term was transitory inflation, it was going to come and go, got to it too late. And now you're saying that rising interest rates, high costs of borrowing are constraining the takeoff of growth. I read this week that one Bank of England official, I think Catherine Mann, was saying mm. you need to keep on increasing interest rates because you need to get inflation back down under 2%. What do you make of that thinking? It's not where I am personally. So um, uh, the story of the last 18 months or so is basically bank – uh, a bit late uh, to put its foot on the brake. Um, that's not just me speaking with 2020 hindsight. I was actually voting for it when I was on the committee for, for, for tighter policy. And that meant when the brake did come on, it came on fast and hard. Uh, and for me, probably they've slightly overdone it uh, when it comes to risks to the economy. You know, a recession or unemployment is not a price worth paying for going gangbusters to get down from a number like three or four to a number like two. And you say hard numbers. Do you trust any of the numbers? Because hasn't the ONS, the Office of National Statistics, fundamentally revised the, their numbers for the UK economy? Uh, yeah, and it's a fairly regular occurrence. So last week, having thought that we'd uh, recovered from COVID more slowly than almost everyone else, it turns out on the revised numbers, we hadn't. We were middle of the pack on that front. So yeah, this thing, GDP, was revised up by 2%, which is a whopper amount. Of course, the previous year had been revised down almost the same amount. So of course, even the hard numbers aren't that hard. Uh, and every number needs to be viewed with a degree of pinch of salt. I mean, that's not the ONS's fault, I don't think. Um, By the way, you say it's not the ONS's fault. Whose fault is it? Well, um, the ONS, on average, do as good, if not better, a job as anyone else internationally, right? So there aren't some outlier that's getting it wrong while everyone else is getting it right. It's just a tough gig, right? It's a tough job to collect the right data in real time to tell the story, especially during COVID. Um, so, you know... I think they get always get pilloried when the numbers get changed. But on average, they do a pretty good job most of the time. Kat, what do you think? One question is, 
is there not this kind of we dance around it but this there is the implication that when you're raising rates that actually you want to cause a certain amount of pain and although no politician would ever admit it perhaps in some instances a recession is the desired outcome because that is kind of what the end goal is yeah yep. Andy, thank you for your story hidden behind a question. <laughs> I was always told, actually, that you're not allowed to write a headline with a question mark at the end of it, so we might just strip it away uh, and treat that as the statement that I think it is. Andy, thank you for the story. We're going to take a break and then go to Jeevan. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Stephen, what's yours? So, James, Bernard Looney quit as chief executive of BP this week. Um, we should just say, Stephen, this is quite an exciting story for you because normally you arrive with a story of apocalypse in some form or another. <laughs> and it was going to editor. be. It was going to be an apocalypse, but you changed your mind, didn't you? I mean, Stephen, you know, you don't get a lot of sex stories in the, you know, climate beat, so you've got to grab <laughs> well, on it when I, you get one. I, I, I am the Manic Street preacher, you know, warning <laughs> of the end of the world. T- today, the end of the world has been postponed. Instead, I'm talking about love. <laughs> Thank you. How nice is that? It's a treat. Um, so, so the first thing to say about this story is, you know, I've nothing against office romance. Barack and Michelle Obama met in a Chicago law firm, completely fine. I, I think there are a couple of interesting questions here. Um, firstly, a point to make about something that I think has changed at work. Um, there have always been relations between bosses and subordinates, normally between a man who's a boss and a woman who's his subordinate. Uh, And what tends to happen when the relationship starts to flourish, the woman looks for a job somewhere else. So it's the woman who moves. What we've seen in the last few years is that it's often the man who's had to pay the price. Uh, It's, you know, the company has said to the man, this is not suitable for you as boss to be doing this. Um, Can can I just understand exactly, just in in the Bernard Looney case... What actually happened? Sure. So the core of the Bernard Looney case, as we understand it, is a set of historic uh, allegations about personal relationships that he had before he became CEO. There were were raised with the board, um, and they went to Looney to discuss these in May of last year. And it appears that they accepted um, his version of events and moved on from there, kept him as CEO. And they were all consensual, their relationship. So they were office romances in that sense, or office relationships. There's no suggestion that they were non-consensual. So they they, they all appear to be in office relationships predating his time as as CEO. Then uh, in the last few weeks, uh, new allegations emerge. 
there are questions about how recent they were, whether they relate to his time as CEO. Okay. These new allegations, coupled with the fact that Looney did not disclose them earlier, have tipped the board's hand, basically. So there are, there are two issues here. One of them is the relationships, and the other is his transparency with the board. Do you really think that it's reasonable for a company to say to someone, we need, essentially, your romantic CV? The issue around it is the the level of seniority, right? When you have this kind of dynamics, power balance, when you have someone who is very, very powerful, and we obviously don't know how junior these other people were, but they clearly weren't as powerful as him. Um, that That's, I think, where the kind of issue comes from. It's not two colleagues of a similar level dating each other. It's, you know, h- how appropriate is this within that context? The, the issue around fessing up once you've been asked is, you know, it's the lie that gets you. C- completely. I get it. Andy, what do you think of this? Well, I, I'm, I'm less close than I think uh, Kat and Jeevan to the story. But uh, my really the ruins had been in line with Kat's actually that, that what did for him was not the relationships, but the failure to disclose them um, accurately and adequately. And, um, and that's a right. A, you should go in those situations. I remember being a young reporter at the FT when there was a scandal years and years and years ago at the Bank of England when a deputy governor of the Bank of England had a sexual relationship with someone that they worked with in the offices. If you've ever been in the Bank of England, it's not exactly conducive to that kind of thing. Um, uh, in the office of the Bank of England, and I remember being around the back bench when the FT debate was, does the deputy governor of the Bank of England have sex with someone at the Bank of England or make love to the person? <laughs> this was the FT's kind of I- I- issue at that moment. And also a really big debate at the time about putting it on the front page. Actually, it wasn't in the Bank of England building. It was the Bank of England flat. Oh, was uh, it? That he used. I, I think... Um, <laughs> oh, this is big news. I didn't know the Bank of England, A, had a flat. At the time, B, it did. The flat's did. since gone. Not for that reason, I don't think, James. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, the, the rug in that flat became um, quite famous. Yes. Um, well, no, just so you know, just so you can get into the details of this, because it was famously on a Bank of England rug, right, that this... That's right. Wow. Lovemaking happened. Oh and the reason why I've now completely recalibrated the story is if you go into the Bank of England, have you been in Catterbank? No. Right. There's an enormous atrium with this huge rug. And so I imagined that it was something much more, <laughs> you know, Puffing. adventurous, obviously, than it was. There are bonus points here for the person who can remember the sun headline on that story. I can. Which was, of course, the Bank of England. <laughs> They didn't worry about making love versus having sex. At the uh, they the went straight for the. Uh, I think you might find that the FT readership <laughs> migrated to the sun that day. <laughs> but, but, Stephen, just go back to your thing. Um, your point is there's a kind of culture and values in corporates story here. Is there really a what direction now for the BP? kind of, you know, uh, climate editor re-engages <laughs> apocalyptic mindset. It's always a local angle. This. So, yeah, well, my, my bonus argument here um, is seriously that BP is ahead of its peers in terms of the net zero transition and their share prices suffered as a result. Mm-hmm. So the board was signed up to Looney's strategy. But if you have a new CEO coming in and saying, look, guys, we've just been overambitious on this. The world has changed. We need hydrocarbons until 2050. Um, we have to be part of this. I think there's a persuasive argument for a new CEO to make. And this is a moment at which BP's climate strategy, I think, is in danger. All right. So, Andy, the way this works is that 
at the end, we all make a call on which story should lead the news. You're not allowed to pick your own. Um, This wouldn't be a problem for you because I'm sure you're sort of more thoughtful and collegiate than us journalists. (laughs) But we would naturally double down on our own. So um, between uh, Labour Readies and uh, BP Exit... Listen, I, I like them both. Uh, it's, a, it's a cop-out response. We won't um, take it personally. It's fine. No, We've been here well, many times. Is that true, though, Kat? <laughs> is what I'm thinking. Um, I think in, uh, I hadn't thought about the media uh, and in particular the Murdoch dimension to Starmer today. So that would be a big learning for me. So if I was a reader, I think that, that tells me something yeah. I would not otherwise have thought about. So I'll go with Kat. Jeevan? So again, I feel pretty divided. Um, I, I do think the sort of Murdoch embracing Starmer feels significant, but I think for the public as a whole, the Aryan recession question feels like the one that I want to know more about. Card? Yes, I agree. Are we in recession? Uh, I also think, Andy, I mean, look, I think the same. I think the UK economy leads. I think that in the sort of old, in my old life kind of FT times, the news lead would be former chief economist of the Bank of England says government is unlikely to hit its growth target in 2023, even if it chins the bar on inflation, or doomy gloomy surveys suggest we're heading into a recession in the second half of the year, says former chief economist of the Bank of England. In one way or another, you probably lose the question mark. So I'd lead with (laughs) the UK economy. Funnily enough, I think that the creeping... Murdoch embrace of Labour or a new ambivalence Mm -hmm. and an abandonment of a kind of commitment to the Tories is a shift from Corbyn's Labour that is very significant. And if you were in the Starmer team today, you'd think it's begun. Mm -hmm. The question is how far they'll go. So for that reason, I think it's a story that I'd run on the running order, Cal, I'd run it third. But the reason that I would run Bernard Looney second is that it's a story that is in many ways, high and low. If you want to be Jeevan and think about the implications for BP's climate strategy, it's got something for you. And if you're almost anyone else, it's got like one of the laws of office romance. So on that basis... I'm not sure what you're saying about me, Jeevan. Only good things, Jeevan. They're bad about everyone else. Andy, thank you so much for coming in. Kat, Jeevan, thank you so much. If you think we've got this entirely wrong, if you think that none of these stories should have even made it into this news meeting or that we've got the hierarchy wrong, just do let us know. Email us at newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. You'll be amazed how much time we spend going over those emails and voicemails thinking, actually, what's our mix? Are we getting that right? So please let us know. Um, I'm going to be traveling Monday. Giles Wattel is going to be just back from the US with thoughts of what this... uh, early phase in a coming election year is going to mean. So do join uh, him and the team on Monday. I do just want to end with the words of Ella Milman, who's the mother of Evan Gershevich, the Wall Street Journal reporter who has now been detained in Russia on bogus espionage charges for over six months. Here she is speaking at the UN. We are still in shock. Every day is a day too long. I miss him every day. Evan loves being a journalist His passion is reporting the news and helping people understand Russia and the Russian people. He's always been curious about the world and loved traveling. He cares deeply about people. His reporting has kept the world informed and we all miss reading his stories. Now what he writes is letters. 
We've been able to send letters back and forth, and it gives me comfort to see how strong he is. We are glad he's kept his sense of humor, teasing me that the prison food reminds him of my cooking. We are all very concerned, especially since it's been so long, and we want him to come home as soon as possible. Tortoise. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. She Love Cleopatra. is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.